All right, well, we are starting a, a new series, and uh, it's, it's interesting, and it's been a stretch to, to think about moving into homes this week, but the series we're starting is a series on victory, leading up to Easter, which is, of course, the Christian celebration of the victory of Jesus over sin, over death, over the devil, and, and over the life that, that we experience here. And so today we are kicking that series off and is victory over sin. We're in Romans chapter 6, and I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. If you have a Bible app or a Bible, I'll give you a second to open that up. But we'll be, we'll be looking at Romans chapter 6, um, verses 6 through 14. So I'll read that if you want to read along with me in the New Living Translation. Romans 6. Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome. He says, We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with the Christ, so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death has no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way that you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master. For you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Church, this is the word of the Lord for his church this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. That God, wherever we're gathering, wherever we're hearing your word, God, we submit ourselves to your authority, your sovereignty. We ask you now for your Holy Spirit to teach us and instruct us and lead us and change us to be more like Jesus. Holy Spirit, open our minds, open our, the eyes of our hearts so we can see the victory that we have in Christ Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, renowned evangelist and preacher D.L. Moody would often tell a story of an old woman uh, who was a slave her whole life. And in the aftermath of the Civil War, this woman had been told that she was now free, that the U.S. government had abolished slavery and all slaves were free people. But she was deeply confused about her status as a, as a free person now. And looking for an answer, she would go around asking, she'd say, am I free or am I not free? My old master tells me that I'm not free, but when I go to my old people, they say that I am. And so I don't know whether I'm free or not. Some people say that Abraham Lincoln signed a proclamation, but the old master says he didn't have any right to. Am I free or am I not free? Now, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 6. And it may be exactly the place that many of us find ourselves today, unsure of our freedom from slavery to sin. 
And all of us are affected by sin. Even in this season right now where the coronavirus is, is running rampant, we are reminded of the invasiveness of sin. And we all experience the consequences and the impact of sin on our daily lives. And sometimes we're enduring the impact of other people's sin on our life. And other times we're enduring the hurt and the hardship of our own sin. But the Bible makes it clear that we've all sinned. And furthermore, the Bible reveals that our sin is the root of everything that is wrong in the world. And when God made the world, he said that it was good. And when he finally created men and women, after he had created uh, the earth and everything on it, everything under it, everything in it, put them all in their right spot, he inserted a man and a woman, and he didn't say it was good, he declared it was very good. In Hebrew, he said it was good, good. But what was so good, good? It was men and women living with God, humanity created in God's image. We were made to image God. We're made to walk with God. And so here's Adam and Eve walking with God, naming animals, stewarding God's creation with God, trusting and enjoying God while receiving and walking in the blessings of God in creation. Church, we were made by God in the image of God, made to be with God. We were made to steward creation and steward the love of God with God. But we only get two chapters into the Bible Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Those are the Garden of Eden chapters. And then sin enters into the picture. And with the introduction of sin comes separation from God. And along with separation from God comes the introduction of shame. Now we know that Adam and Eve felt guilty when they sinned against God. And we know this because they hid from God. I mean hiding, that's, that's what kids do. Guilty kids hide. My son Shem lives to be with me. He wakes up early in the dark in the morning to have tea and toast with me. He wants to sleep on me. But when he does something wrong and he feels guilt for what he's done, he'll hide under a blanket. He'll lay on our our well-made king-size bed and he'll throw one of his little bright-colored blankets and he's a little lump hiding. Or he'll be in the middle of the living room on our hardwood floor hiding. Well, that's what Adam and Eve did. They're hiding. They're hiding in the bushes. Well, why do we hide in our sin? And we hide in our sin because we don't know how to deal with the guilt of our sin. We have this heaviness, this weight on us. And it's impossible to feel good. It's impossible to feel normal with this weight on us. And eventually this weight becomes part of our identity. We start to see ourselves differently. And we start to see ourselves in light of the things that we've done. And we start to feel differently about ourselves as we live with the weight of sin on our backs. And there's a word for this condition. That word is shame. Unresolved guilt leads to shame. Now, guilt is simply the understanding that we've done something wrong. And so guilt in and of itself isn't a bad thing. In fact, the Holy Spirit actually uses guilt to convict us of our sin and and to turn us back to God. But shame is something different. Shame sets in when we don't allow the Spirit to do His work. When we say no and we resist the work of the Spirit to lead us to repentance. Repentance, of course, being a word that just means to turn away from sin and to return to God. Rather than turn away from sin, rather than turn away from the guilt and the shame, what happens in our heart when we're living under the yoke of guilt is we choose to turn away from God. And Some people may not be comfortable with me talking about sin because we don't fully understand it, but it's really not that complicated. I think we all really understand sin. Everybody knows that the world is not the way that it should be. Just look at the news and it's clear that things are broken. 
but I don't even have to look at the news to know that things aren't right in the world. All I have to do is look at my own heart and I know things aren't right. When I do find that my sin turns me from God and my sin tries to function in place of God. In my guilt, in my shame, I will turn to sin rather than to God. Now we want to receive and enjoy God's blessings on our own terms, apart from God. And so often we reject God and we turn to anything other than God for guidance. We'll turn to anything other than God for help or for identity or for hope. In our sin, we reject God and we turn to good things that God has made rather than turning to God himself. We might find our identity in what we do. Some of us find our identity in our career or our talents or our gifts and our abilities rather than in our creator. Or some of us find our security in safety or in health or in the safety and health of our children rather than finding our security in God's sovereignty. Or we look for joy in immediately satisfying things or in immediately satisfying relationships rather than finding joy in God's unchanging presence. And the result of our sin in our life is separation from God. Whenever we pursue the blessings of God apart from the God who blesses, we separate ourselves from God. And a life lived separated from God is a life lived striving for the love and the hope and the approval that only God gives. In short, sin ruins our life. Sin leaves us with guilt, leaves us with shame, and the misery of hard relationships with other broken people who are suffering under the burden of guilt from their sin. And we're estranged from God, the God that we were meant to live with, the God that we were meant to enjoy. And also our sin separates us from others. We're estranged from the God-imaging relationships that we were created to enjoy with other people. And in our sin, we struggle under the weight of guilt and struggle for healthy relationships. It's a hopeless, desperate, miserable, frightening place. Reminds me of when I was in junior high, I was raised in New York, and there was a, a small little sort of crummy ski area that was near my house. And my parents got me the cheapest annual pass that you can buy. It's night skiing only. And my friends and I would go night skiing. And uh, we, we, we quietly mocked these upright, uptight uh, ski patrols, the other teenagers that were just like, you know, enforcing the rules. And we'd try to, you know, squirt salad dressing on them from the chairlift and, and, and yell at them from the chairlift, just being idiots, right? Well, we all didn't just mock the ski patrol. We also mocked the rules. And one of the rules that they strictly enforced at night was to stay on the lighted slopes. Don't go, don't go into the dark areas. Don't go cross country. Well, one night, skiing cross country, my friends and I had built a jump, and I crashed, and I slid uncontrollably, and I got stuck under a fence. And there I am, covered in snow, freezing. I immediately felt the weight of my guilt, right? I had broken a rule that now, all of a sudden, as I lay there, seemed totally rational and good. But I also immediately recognized the severity of my situation, my legs are totally pinned. I'm covered in snow, freezing, far from the lighted, groomed slope. I didn't deserve to be freed. I, I knew I had blatantly and foolishly broken the rules. I also didn't deserve to be found. I had mocked the people in the position that, that would, would have, I'd be crying out to for help. And so I'm lying there, ashamed, stuck, cold, helpless, scared. Thankfully, I was found. The ski patrol guy finds me, pulls me out, helps me find my lost ski, helps me find my lost hat, make sure I'm not hurt, follows me to the bottom of the hill to make sure I was safe. This guy saved me, okay? My blatant foolish actions landed me in a place where my only hope was for a savior. 
See, this is how we are in our sin apart from God. We're stuck, we're ashamed, we're helpless, and we're even scared. And we need to be saved. We need a savior. We need someone who is looking for us. People stuck under the fence of our foolish rebellion. Thankfully, that's exactly what Jesus is. Jesus is a savior. He searches us out and he saves us. Jesus saves us from our slavery to sin. And he does this by both forgiving the guilt of our sin and eliminating the shame of our sin. And Jesus did all this by offering us himself, a sinless man offers himself to pay the penalty that we, had, that we deserve, that we had incurred for our own sin. The shed blood of Jesus deals with both our separation from God and our separation from other people. Jesus saves us from both of our miseries, our shame and our broken relationships. Jesus literally takes our place, the Bible tells us, receiving the punishment that we've earned in our sin against God. And Jesus makes us right with God. See, on the cross, Jesus restored our right standing with God. He separates us from our sin by taking the guilt upon himself. And he brings peace between a sinful person like me and a holy God. And so while sin separates us from God, Jesus now separates us from sin. And this means that the image of God is restored in us by Jesus saving us. In Jesus, we can now live with God. In Jesus, we're now once again able to join God in the work that he is doing, just as he intended in the Garden of Eden. Jesus' blood restores our right standing with God because Jesus absorbed the wrath of God and removes our guilt. We are now free from shame because we are free from guilt, which leads to shame. And a shame-free life is a changed life. A life without shame is a new life. That's what it says in our passage in Romans 6, verse 6. Paul says, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. See, Jesus' death and resurrection also defeats the controlling power of sin in our life. Jesus literally absorbed the wrath of God, giving up his life to pay the debt that our sin had incurred upon ourselves. And after Jesus pays the full price, paid in full, he then lays his life down. But he doesn't just lay his life down. He takes our sin into the grave. And he stayed in the grave for three days. Now back then, if you're in the grave for three days, that's proof that you're dead. Jesus didn't just go into the grave and come out and then it can sort of be disputed. He went to the grave and remained there for three days. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, leaving our sin in the grave, giving us victory over sin. Jesus took our shame, forgave our guilt, he took our crushing insecurity. He took addiction. Jesus took pornography and lust and greed and envy and dishonesty. And Jesus separated you from those things. He separated you from the critical spirit that we have. He separated us from the negative words, the defensiveness, the toxic, cutting speech that we have in our life. Jesus took all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame into the grave and he left it there. See, the death and resurrection of Jesus are real power that really transforms sinful people. There is power in the blood of Jesus. This is important for us to hear the specific power of the cross of Jesus and the blood of Jesus because Jesus isn't simply a great example for us to follow. He's not like the goal that we're working toward. 
We're not saved in order for us to now we can work harder and harder to free ourselves from falling back into sin. No, Jesus, the Bible tells us, was the living sacrifice. He was the Lamb of God whose blood was shed, just like an Old Testament sacrifice. His blood was shed so that the power of sin over our lives would be broken. It was broken one time. Sin is far too powerful for us to free ourselves from its hold on us. Willpower is not enough. We need God's power to defeat sin. Now, this is the power of the cross. Not only did Jesus die on that cross, but so did we. Listen to how Paul puts this. There's a, there's a death that we all experienced in Jesus. Romans chapter 6, look at verse 7. It says, For when we died with Christ, when we died with Christ, it says we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know that we also will live with him. We are sure of this. Why? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. See, being a Christian means that we are dead to sin. The old Billy, the one who loved sin, he died with Jesus on the cross. And now there's a new Billy, one who loves to live for righteousness. In my new identity, this is the one that rose from the grave with Jesus, my separated from my sin. This is how the apostle Peter puts this, uh, this experience. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he says, He, Jesus, Jesus personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we could be dead to sin and live for what is right. So because Jesus took my sin to the grave and left it there, I now have victory over sin. See, my affections for sin have changed because my old self who loved sin is dead. I now see sin as this foreign, foolish, cheap alternative to the goodness of God's will. I no longer want to sin. But here's the honest truth of my life. I still do sin. I still sin and I hate it. In fact, I sin more than I care to admit and I hate it more than I could ever express. This leads us back to where we started today. That sweet old woman who was born into slavery, struggling with the reality that she had been set free. Am I free or am I not free? Because it may be true this morning that we are free from the slavery to sin, but perhaps we're struggling to live in that freedom. Paul addresses this very issue in our verse, in our passage today. And he gives us some practical advice in the last part. In verse 13, Romans chapter 6, verse 13, Paul says, Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourself completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's getting at the heart of the Christian's struggle with sin. Now, we might have officially been set free from our sin, but some of us, it seems, remain imprisoned by old patterns, old patterns of thinking and old patterns of behaving. It's like when someone is released from prison, when they've served uh, decades in prison. They often still think and act like a prisoner, even though they are now free. They've been given their freedom, but the habits and the patterns of freedom aren't ingrained in them anymore. In a prisoner's life, when he's in prison, the habits of freedom are a foreign concept. And so there are these free people who are freely living their lives, 
but they're choosing to live as if they're still in prison. This is Paul's point. Jesus' victory over sin, it means that we have victory over sin. We don't have to be given over to our sin. We were once slaves to sin, slaves who obey their master. That's what a slave does, right? The slave master of sin used to direct and rule my life, and I did whatever my master directed me to do. But we're no longer slaves to sin, Paul's saying. This means I don't have to do what my old master, sin, tempts me to do. I'm no longer stuck. I'm no longer forced. My hand isn't forced in that. I heard a funny story several years ago that illustrates this point really well, and it's actually true, this historical uh, story. So it's two brothers in the mid-1300s, the end of the 12th century, and uh, an older brother named Renal was the duke of this area in Belgium, and his younger brother, Edmund, or Edward, was, was fighting him. He wanted to overthrow his older brother, and eventually he was successful, overthrows his older brother, but instead of killing his older brother, Renal, Younger brother Edward found a way to make peace with Renault's followers and bring them in to support him by keeping Renault in prison but as a free man. And here's what he did. Renault was, the older brother was a big man. He was actually hugely obese. There was a, there was a, a crass nickname for him. It's called crasses, which is a Latin word where we get the word crass. And it means obese. It means really fat. And so Edward, the younger brother, gave his older brother a big room with windows and a door. But the door was a too small for Renault to exit. He was just too big. And so he never locked this door. It was never locked. The windows were never barred. And Edward promised Renault and Renault's supporters that hey, he could leave any time he wants. His title and his lands could be restored any time. All he has to do is leave the room. So the obstacle to Renault's freedom was not in the doors. It wasn't in bars on the windows. It was within Renault himself. He was too wide to fit through the door even though it was near normal size. All he had to do was diet down to a smaller size and walk out a free man. But here his younger brother kept sending him these amazing foods, right? Like you do when you live in a palace. And Renault's desire, his desire to be free, never won out over his desire to eat. Now some accused young Edward of being cruel to his older brother. And, and he would just reply, listen, my brother is not a prisoner. He can leave when he so wills. But Renault stayed in that room for 10 years until younger brother Edward was finally killed in some battle. This free man living as a prisoner to his appetite. Now we're going to talk about Satan in a couple of weeks, but this is how Satan operates. Christian, listen up. That's how Satan works. Satan feeds and tries to satisfy our sinful desires to keep us depending on sin rather than depending on God. Even though we're free, we get duped into believing Satan. We get duped into choosing to sin. See, this is the experience of many Christians set free from our imprisonment to sin. We're invited, exhorted, we're charged now by the Apostle Paul to walk in freedom. But some of us give into our various appetites and continue to serve sin. Free people in Christ experiencing defeat, perhaps, in life. Experiencing discouragement. It might feel like imprisonment even. King David is a tragic picture of this. Remember, young David uh, submits the use of his young body to serve God, and he publicly kills the giant Goliath. Right With his young hands, untrained hands, he's able to take down this giant using the power of God. God used him as he submitted his body to God. But then, of course, later in life, David uses his body to serve sin as he acts upon his lust. 
and he publicly brings his life and all of Israel to shambles. See, the writer of Hebrews puts it so poignantly. The writer of Hebrews basically says, listen, just get rid of it. Just get rid of the sin now that you're in Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, the first verse, it says, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles. What he's saying is we have a choice. Because we have the power over sin, we now choose who we serve. And Jesus' victory over sin that we now means that we now have victory over sin. Paul's saying you're free now to choose who you're going to serve. He's saying don't use your freedom to go back and serve sin like a slave. Don't go back to being a slave to sin. Look at what he says in verse 13, Romans 6.13. He says, instead, give yourself completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. See, Paul acknowledges this and he shows us now how to build habits of freedom into our life as Christians. We don't just stop serving sin. We now use our whole body to serve God. It wasn't a 50-50 proposition that Jesus made on the cross. He he didn't go to the the cross to save 70% of us and then leave 30% so we could just dabble in sin and defeat our whole life. No, Jesus achieved full unilateral victory over sin from the cross. Hanging naked, beaten, despised, having endured the full weight of the guilt and the shame that we brought about. Jesus achieved victory over sin. And on the cross, in that place, he declares in a full loud voice, the Bible says, it is finished. Jesus declared victory over sin. That wasn't, he wasn't garnishing his words with hyperbole and metaphor. That wasn't a moment for half-truths. Jesus had waged war on sin. And in that moment, he declared full victory over sin. Sin had been called out by Jesus. It had been drugged to a cross by Jesus. It had been killed by Jesus. And then it was buried with Jesus and left in the grave by Jesus. Sin, Christian, is defeated. It has no power. None. The only power that sin has in my life is the power that I give it. Jesus put sin in his place when he rose from the grave in victory and brought us with him. We are free to live and love and walk in freedom and victory over sin. And Paul is saying that we need to be careful to invest ourselves completely, not mostly. He's saying your mind, your arms, your lips, your legs, your hands, your feet, your emotions, we are completely invested now in the glory of God. This idea uh, reminds me of how the Old Testament priests Uh, they would consecrate their bodies in Exodus chapter 29, uh, verses 19 through 21. You can read this if you'd like to. But they would take blood from the temple sacrifice and they would uh, put it on their ear and on their thumb and on their big toe. And it seems funny, but, but the idea behind it, what they're doing is they're demonstrating that every part of their body belonged to God. Every part of their body was committed to being used for the glory of God. That's what Paul is saying. We're to similarly present ourselves to God. Because we've died with Jesus, we're now alive in Jesus, and we present ourselves to God as brand new. And as we present ourselves to God, in that we're we're continually reminding ourselves, acknowledging that our old self is dead and gone. I am not who I once was. The old life is over. The old slave to sin is done, is gone. And as we present ourselves to God, we then live differently 
than we lived before. And how do we live? Paul says in the next verse, in verse Romans 6, verse 14, he says, Sin no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. What Paul's doing here is he's showing us the new course for our new life. And the new course for our life is not charted by our performance. The new course for our new life is charted by God's grace. Trying harder will never bring victory over the slave master of sin. Being a better person won't do it. If we want to live in true freedom from sin, we must live in the freedom of God's grace. Because the law was never meant to give us freedom. The law was meant to show us that we're slaves to sin and that we need to be set free. The law was intended to show us that we needed a savior. The law was supposed to put the exclamation point on Jesus's life when we saw him. See, God's grace, not God's law, God's grace provides the power to live free from sin. This might sound strange to some Christians because some people uh, might assume that grace means that we can just sin and get away with it. And they're like, I'm really cautious about grace, Billy. Listen, that's not in the Bible. I don't know where we get that. God's grace is, is never permission to sin. Grace is never a license to sin. Nowhere in the Bible. Grace is God's means of defeating sin. Charles Spurgeon declared this. He said that the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. When we put our faith in Jesus and we're saved and our sins are forgiven and God's ongoing grace is extended to us, we are radically changed and we now walk by grace. Our old self dies. It's dead. This happens by grace. There's now a new person who lives. That happens by grace. And this new person now lives a new life and it's a life of freedom from sin. This is an act of grace. And here's where things might start to feel a little uncomfortable though. Because in light of all of these incredible truths and this incredible change that happens when a person is transformed uh, and, and becomes a Christian, it is absurd really. It's, it's impossible even for a new creation in Jesus to be comfortable and content to live in ongoing habitual sin. A state of, of habitual sin, of a life that's punctuated by sin, it can only be temporary for a Christian. The Apostle Paul, or excuse me, the Apostle John uh, talks about this in 1 John chapter 3. He says in verse 6, he goes, anyone who continues to live in him, in Jesus, will not sin. Now, the, the, the tense of that verb, it means he won't go on, won't continue in habitual sin. He says, but anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who's been sinning since the beginning. It's John with a little rhyme there. A little. <laughs> but the son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they're children of God. So now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. Both Paul and John are talking about a change in us. But listen, this change may not come all at one time. 
And all of these changes that Paul and then John now is talking about, they may not happen in every area of our life all at the same time. But listen, this change is in there. This change is happening. And this change, thank God, is increasing in me. And this, sanctif- this is what's called sanctification, the word that the Bible uses. And it's a process of grace in our life. We now walk in God's grace, being sanctified, and God's grace changes us. We are literally changed by grace. We, now, we are now equipped and empowered to live a new life in Jesus. We're changed. Jesus now satisfies our desires. He satisfies those longings that we have. He restores our life with God. We no longer need to sin. Sin is dead to us. You guys know that expression, right? When someone will look at someone and they'll say, you're dead to me, right? Well, that means that you want nothing to do with that person. That means that we find no value in letting any part of that person into our life. In certain cultures, people that want to write someone off, they'll actually hold a funeral for a family member that they're excommunicating from the family. And then they will live their life as if that person is dead. Guys, sin is dead to us. Sin was put in a grave, but nobody came to the funeral, right? We're like, no, we're done with you. See, once something is worthless and it becomes dead to us, why would we ever turn back to it? The great preacher John Stott explains it this way. He says, Once a caterpillar has been made a butterfly, the butterfly has no business just crawling around on trees and leaves like a caterpillar again, right? Why would you, with those beautiful wings, just crawl around as if you didn't have them? Charles Spurgeon explains the same thing this way. He says that God has so changed your nature by his grace that when you sin, you shall be like a fish on dry land. You shall be out of your element. And you'll long to get into a right state again. You cannot sin for you love God. He says the sinner might drink sin down just as the ox drinks water down. But to you, Christian, it'll be like the brine of the sea. You may become so foolish as to try the pleasures of the world, but they shall be no pleasure to you. Because Jesus the living wa- is the living water. We don't have to drink the nasty salt water of sin anymore. And some of us need to hear the words that every slave throughout history longed to hear. Today, you need to hear, you are free at last, Christian. Because Jesus conquered sin. Sin is dead to us. We're now sin's master. How do you walk in this victory? By fixing our eyes, by fixing our affections on Jesus. Our new life and all of our new desires are found in Jesus. Jesus is our victory. In Jesus, we have real victory over sin. In Jesus, we have victory over shame. In Jesus, we have real freedom and we have a new life. Victory is the cry of the Christian. Jesus is victorious and we are victorious in him. Christian, put your eyes on Jesus. I know that my heart will wander off when my eyes aren't fixed on Jesus. I know my affections will wander off when they're not trained upon Jesus. See, my identity will start to shift when my thoughts and my desires start to shift away from Jesus. And maybe today you're stuck under that fence. You're stuck under the fence of sin. And you're stuck. You might be feeling alone, unnoticed. Listen, Jesus is a savior. That's what he does. He saves stuck people. And today Jesus is offering to pull you out of the fence, to free you from sin, to free you from shame, and to give you victory. 
In this season where fear and uncertainty are running rampant in our culture right now, listen, turn to Jesus. Satan wants to steal peace. Satan wants to kill love. Satan wants to destroy relationships. Turn to Jesus. Jesus is a savior. He's looking for you. He's seeking you out. Jesus will meet you when he finds you. He'll meet you with grace and he'll offer you forgiveness. He'll make you right with God. Jesus will change your heart. He'll change your affections. He will change the course of your life. Your life will be charted by his grace. Listen, today is a day of victory. In the face of defeat, turn to Jesus and declare victory. In the face of fear, declare victory. Jesus is our victory, church. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth of this reality. That because Jesus is victorious over sin, and because Jesus is a Savior, in fact, He is the Savior of the world, that because He's a victorious Savior, we can be saved from our slavery to sin. That is good news. This morning, Lord, we ask you, we ask you, Holy Spirit, to move our hearts, God, to reach out to our Savior, that today would be a day of victory. For those who are listening to this, who don't know Jesus, who haven't claimed that victory and turned from their sin and received forgiveness and put their faith in Jesus for salvation, that today would be the day of salvation. Jesus, I need a savior. Come rescue me. For those of us that have been following you, Jesus, but we feel like we've fallen back under sin's control and have positioned ourselves in such a way that the power of sin seems to have a grip over us, we pray right now in the name of Jesus, victory for the Christian over sin. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move us to confess our sins to God and to walk in victory. We love you, Lord. We thank you, God, that you, you deal with our sin, that you deal with our guilt, you deal with our shame, and you deal with the brokenness in relationships that come along with that. We pray today as we worship, Lord, that your Holy Spirit through the Holy Spirit that the blood of Jesus would wash away our sin as we confess our sin and celebrate and enthrone Jesus wherever we're at. We pray these things in Jesus' name.